I've never done cocaine, but I've hung out with Sam Tingle. Sam is high energy and lives, loves, works, and plays life with the volume all the way up to 100. And if you spend any amount of time with him, that energy is infectious. And I imagine it's like doing a line of coke. The good part of coke, not the dark side. This is the longest podcast I've done, and we didn't even scratch the surface of his 30-year career at Warner Music Group. He'll definitely be back for more episodes. Um, please check out our socials, Facebook and Instagram. You can find us at Sure Podcast, Twitter, Sure Podcasting, uh, Sure Podcasting. Also, check out the band that I'm in, World Is Watching. We are on all the streaming services, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at World Is Watching Official. Sam Tingle, everyone. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, I just had to. I'm having to retake. I, I put something out there in the in the the universe that Sam didn't want out there. Uh, it's about his. Uh... Oh, stop! <laughs> anyway, I'm here with Sam Tingle, my buddy for I don't know. We've been I've known you since I was like 16 years now. Yeah, 16. you were you were at Music Network. That was the first time I met you over there. In well, uh, yeah, I met you there, but actually, the night we bonded was at. Uh, you were throwing a Kid Rock listening party, and it was at the Claremont Lounge. Yeah, yeah. That was before I met you, yes. That was for the Cocky album. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was his follow-up album, The Devil Without a Cause. Yeah, yeah. Was, it, was it just a listening party? That's all it was? Yeah, it was a listening party. We played the record and everything. And um, Steve Jones came into my office, uh, awesome guy, made amazing mentor, and... Um, and he and I and our team, you know, artist development team with Atlantic and everything, we were just like had a blast working that first Kid Rock album. And then the second one came, you know, lots of, you know, pressure to, you know, meet expectations and stuff. And he came into my office and he goes, man, we need to have a Kid Rock listening party here in Atlanta. I've got a budget or whatever. He goes, be thinking about it like that. Yeah. And then um, I came in his office. I go, I got it. And then I go, Claremont Lounge. And he looks at me and he goes, that's exactly where we're having it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I look, when, when I look back on that stuff that we did, you know, just fun stuff and that creativity, you know, it's like the, my favorite part of all that was when something clicked, you know, yeah, there was no question. We didn't like, you know, we think about it, but we wouldn't overthink it. You know, it's like, oh, that'd be great. You know? And, yeah. But that was back when, you know, music companies were in the same office together. Yeah, when you could, yeah, that was yeah. back in the day. And that's, it, you know, you have a lot of stories, a lot of interesting stories, but where kind of, I want to start off, because I, I find it real interesting, because jobs in the music business were coveted jobs. I mean, even in, from the oh, yeah. lowest level, I mean. Oh, even, I tried to get a job at a record store all my teenage years. Yeah, exactly. Turtles well, records and tapes. I probably put in 15, 20 applications. Yeah. And I never got a call back. Because there's that whole, depending on the manager, you got to meet the cool factor for the manager back then. You know what I'm saying? Like they, oh, had, it they was, had a certain If you vibe. worked in a record store in the 80s, yeah. when I was in high school and coming of age, you know, like right before I was driving, you know, and you're like wanting to find that cool job. Yeah. I mean, if you worked in a record store, you were in. But then to take it to the next level, and to actually work for a label, that was, I mean, even if you were, it was hard to even get in the job doing the mailroom or 
scrubbing toilets or whatever, if you, you know, for working in that company to be able to move yourself up. So what I found really interesting was you were a manager at Camelot Records. I was like a, I was a key, I wasn't a manager. There was a manager, assistant manager, and, and then there was key. like, there was a key holders. Yeah, okay. And I was one of the key holders. I'd open and sometimes close. So you told me this story recently. So you were working at Camelot one day, mm-hmm. and you were like, hell, I'm going to go on lunch, and I'm going to go down to Warner, uh, Warner well, Brothers. Well, I mean, the, the, to me, the whole working at Camelot, yeah. you know, I mean, there was a lot that went before that. You know, that, you know, to get to that point. To of lead Camelot, up to that, yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, when you go, when you're like currently, you know, we're sidelined now. The yeah. whole country's sidelined. Sure. You know, and when you're sidelined and you're like handcuffed and you can't do certain things, you can't go visit certain relatives, you know, and or there's just, you're literally handcuffed. Like you can't go do this without jeopardizing someone else's health. So, so I started analyzing stuff. I analyze stuff. Yeah. Like, and I've been sidelined, as you know, in 2008, you know, 2008, I had like a, you know, that health scare and, um, I was out for like a whole summer and this summer has been similar to that personally, you know, yeah. just like, Every, you know, I was going hundred miles an hour, flying all over the country, doing sales, marketing. And then all of a sudden, bam, bam, stop. screeching halt. And, uh, but you know, I, like when I was sick that time in 2008 and I was out of work, I wasn't out of work. I was on absence, yeah. you know, until I got through the situation. But that's when I really, really analyzed like, wow, you know, how did I get to this point? You know, and and I analyzed myself in a positive way. Like I really thought about where I'd been and how I got there personally. And it's amazing when you really, really do some serious soul searching, Yeah. you know, and that's all you can do. You know, you can't do Your doctors are telling you that you can't do anything until after your surgery and stuff like that. Um, I did all that. And I mean, I started back from to grammar school Yeah. and like, where it started and yeah. it all started from a very, very early age with my mom first and yeah. my brother and Elvis. <laughs> well, see, I was I mean, going to get to Elvis, but huh? I was going to get to Elvis. But literally my mom, you know, my mom and my brother, did you ever see that movie weird science? Yeah, sure. Remember when they're building a girl Yeah, and they're jamming, all the stuff into the, and they're, you know, they're just jamming all this pop culture yeah. into that machine, you know? Literally, I feel like as a kid, you know, you know, and come, you know, coming from a divorced family and stuff like that, between my mom and my brother and my mom's friends, I was getting it at all angles. My brother was, you know, he's four years older than me. He had tons of records. My mom, tons of records. All different genres, country, rock, you know, dance, you know, all that stuff. Everything. And I was just getting it from all ends. Like, literally, my mom and her friends would go to the record stores. They'd buy tons of records, and there'd be like six or seven women in my you know, mom's kitchen, and they're all doing their hair because they're going to a big concert that weekend, and they're in there making cassette tapes, and we would literally go to Turtles and spend $100 on records, and they'd come back, and I would go to bed listening to everything from George Jones to Elvis to Rod Stewart and 
And I would, I just used to just lay in bed and go, oh, wow, I love that song like that. And then the next morning I'd wake up and all the records would be there. They would record the records. And once they had them on a cassette, they were done with the records. So those, I just kind of. So you inherited the records? Well, I didn't, they were in the house. Yeah. Anybody could listen to them. Sure. And my brother always made sure. I remember going to service merchandise and my brother picking out the most badass stereo. It was me and my mom and my brother. Went to service merchandise on Memorial Drive. My brother, he goes, this is the one we need. Like He knew what he was doing. He's like, Here's the Techniques receiver. Here we go. We got a dual cassette player. And he bought these speakers that you could stand on Yeah, that were incredible. The old school 70s, like wooden speakers. And I mean, that stereo would thump, right? And, you know, there's people that listen to music in the background. There's people, you know, that just listen to music at, a, you know, a certain volume or whatever. All I know is if you really, really want to listen to music, you got to really turn it up. Yeah. You got to crank it. You got to feel it. You got to shake the earth. But that's kind of your motto in life. You kind of live that way. You turn it up. Huh? You turn it up. Oh, if we're going, if we're going to have a party, we're going to have a party. But if you're going to work, if you're going to do your job, you're going to go hundred percent. You're going to go all all in. in. We're going all in. If we're going out for the night, anything you do, I mean, from knowing you this long, that's kind of been your motto across the board, whether it's actual or it's literal. With you know, with the music or metaphorical, with you just your everyday life, how you live life to the fullest every day, cranked up all the way. I love, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love to. I mean, if we're going to set up and we're going to have an on-site store somewhere, my goal is to sell everyone that's coming to that event. One of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's you know, and then the ones that are on the fence, I'm you know, I'm going to sell those to them. As well, you know what I'm saying. So, so you, what I found interesting was is that you went to you were working at Camelot, and we, uh, I was actually before Camelot. Go ahead. But you were at Camelot, yeah. And on one day at lunch, you were like, "I'm gonna go down to Warner Brothers," which was at the time was on uh, where Fulton Industrial, Fulton Industrial Boulevard, Warner Electric Atlantic Corporation. Yeah. So on your on your <laughs> on your um, lunch break. You go down there, you, you tell everybody, hey. Well, first I went in the back and got the phone book out. Yeah. And I looked up Warner. Yeah. And it said Warner Electric Atlantic Corporation, Fulton Industrial. And I had met some of the people from Warner that camp. First of all, Camelot Music, the one I worked at, was at Lenox Square. Okay. And we're talking 1986. All so right? it was popping. Huh? It was popping. A Lenox Square Mall, number one mall in Georgia. It was like Rodeo Drive. It was beautiful mall. I mean, I haven't been there forever, you know, so I have no idea what it's like now. But in the mall, I mean, the malls were the place. I mean, yeah. if you see Fast Times at Ridgemont High, I mean, boom, there you go. Everything centered around the mall. You had the movie theater, you know, everybody knows that. But Lenox Square Mall was amazing. I mean, restaurants, the, you know, the energy between the Marta train to Peachtree, it was, you know, it's kind of like a Times Square sort of for commerce for Atlanta, you yeah. know, culture, a little bit of everything. And I mean, it was, Everything come, you know, all kinds of people come through there. So it was really interesting the uh, amount of people and the the eclectic. You know, I, that's when I really, really got schooled on culture. Is at at Camelot. Like, well, as a matter of fact, I mean, you you uh, waited on some famous people there, didn't you? Oh gosh, yeah. Who oh, all, yeah? Who all? Did my you last know? my last day at Camelot Lennox Mall. You know who I waited on? Who's that? Huh? I'm sitting there, and we used to call it hot stock. You know, like you'd have to stock cassettes. You know, throughout the day on a Saturday, the A, the A, 
Yeah, they, like they you had your understock. Yeah. And, and then I'd sit on the floor, Indian style, and I'd call out the records, you know, to my counterparts that were like walking the wall, the tape wall or whatever. And, um, you know, like a Mia Baker rapture, you know, I'm sitting under there and all of a sudden, guy ta- I mean, we're cranking. I mean, Lenox Square, can't, this is the number one store in the whole country, this store I worked at, Camelot Lenox. I think it was number 177. Yeah. And um, anyway, so I'm sitting there on the floor Indian style, and I'm looking and just trying to dig to see what other tapes I needed to pull out. And the guy taps me on my shoulder, and I turn around. And, I mean, I'm talking nose to nose, two gold earrings staring right at me. <laughs> Gregory Hines. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah, from so- – uh, what was that movie? Did, the he, big? did he tap dance into the store? No, but he looked, I mean, it was like, just the way this mic is, it was nose to nose. And I looked at him and just smiled and and, yeah. and he smiled at me because he knew, I knew who he was. And he goes, I got to have one of them Anita Baker cassettes. Like, I got you right here. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was, I waited on all kinds of people. Um, some of my favorites that would come in there all the time, you know, like Guy Sharp. He was the big weatherman. Oh, yeah, if you're Guy a Georgia, Sharp, wow. If you're a Georgia native, you know. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I've always liked his name. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I've watched him, you know, my whole childhood growing up in Atlanta. And I just thought that I'm big on names, and I love names and slogans. And, I mean, you cannot get any cooler than Guy Sharp. No. He was I mean, the one who had the white hair. White right? hair. Yeah. yeah. And, um you know, my grandparents always watched the you know news and stuff. And when I'd stay with them a lot as a kid, we'd sit there and you know watch Guy Sharp. And he sure, would yeah. he'd come in there like in early in the morning, right when we opened. Yeah. You know, and I used to sell him uh, Wyndham Hill. You know, remember those Wyndham Hill artists? Oh yeah. Like December. Sold a lot of them. Yeah. He'd come in there and he <laughs> he would buy that, and and then he'd go up to the McDonald's up there in the front of Lennox and sit and have coffee with. You know, just people. He was super cool. Our regular, and this is why I was working at a record and tape world in Noonan. Yeah. Every Tuesday, about probably about somewhere in the, within the first hour we opened, this big van would pull up. Mm-hmm. And out would come Dale Murphy on Tuesdays, new releases. He had that big van because he had about 17 children yeah. at the time. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, he would come in, we'd sell him his stuff. He'd go on his way. But, I mean, super nice dude. Hands bigger than your head. I mean, right. ridiculous. But, yeah, that was our that was our guy, the Murph. He, uh, I, like, he was guest, like, um, uh, commentating with the Braves. Was he? Like, for, it was like two or three years ago when they would, he'd come in and just, you know, sit in the booth and do the games with them. Yeah. And I thought he was, like, so good because he sounded just like a regular guy sitting on the couch but he would just go, his expressions, like when the guy would like crush a home run, he'd be like, wow, that dude got all of that one. Just <laughs> real chill, you know? Yeah. Like where Ernie Johnson and, you know, those yeah. guys were like, it's a deep cut to the left center. He'd just be like, whoa, did you see that thing? I mean, and I, he just kept it really real. And I, I miss him being in, I mean, I miss baseball. In Period general. right now. Period. Yeah. I mean, that was. My favorite that growing up it was baseball music for me. Yeah. So you so you so lunchtime. Let's go back to the story because this this story to me is the essence of Sam Tingle. You, when you told me, so you. you so I, here's what I did. I went back. I grabbed the phone booth. First of all, I, I loved working at Camelot. Yeah. It was all great, but I knew that next level. that was not that was not. I did not want to manage a record store. Yeah. You know, nothing against managing record stores or whatever, but I wanted the next the next move. Yeah. I've met people, 
you know, they come in there, that marketed record. I go, I can do that. And I know I can do that well. I just knew I could, you know, passion. And, you know, if I'm passionate about something, I'm, I love doing it. So, and there, it's not work to me when it's like that. So I just went back in the back, opened the mail. I mean, opened the um, telephone book and found the address and I called him. I called him and a guy answered the phone. And um, there's a guy that used to work there. His name was Chuck. Yeah. And uh, I mean, he was a trip. He was like, he was like something out of like a David Lynch movie or something. Just an, just an eclectic fella, you know? And he was like, good afternoon. He had the odd voice, you know? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I says, yeah, I go, I was just calling to see if you guys were hiring. And um, he goes, no, we're not like that. You know, real short and to the point. Yeah. Not rude, just to the point. Matter of fact. And, and I go, okay. All right. Thank you. Like that. And I just hung up. And then I went back out on the floor and uh, just thought about it for a minute and went back in the back and says, you know, I've got a um, appointment. I'm on, you know, on, on lunch break. I might be a little bit late, but I'll be right back or what. And they're like, yeah, yeah, no problem. It was a slow day. It was like just nothing going on really. And um, I drove down there anyway, you know, and I get down there, walk in. And I knew that's the guy I just talked to, you know, because I could hear him. He's very loud yeah. talker. Yeah. I mean, he's working a switchboard for freaking, what, 300 people in there, you know? Yeah. And um, and I just says, uh, yeah. I asked him again. I go, are you guys hiring like that? And he goes, uh, no, we're not like that. And I go, well, do you have any applications? Can I fill out an application and just leave it on file, you know? And he just looked at me and he goes, pulls out a drawer and he just tears one off and hands me an application and clipboard and a pen. And I go, thank he, you. He didn't have time for you. Did you? Huh? He, he knew that, that, that I was probably the 20th guy that's been in exactly, there. Exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It, which I understood, you yeah. know, and, um, I just grabbed the clipboard and I'm sitting there on the couch and I'm filling it out. And by this time it's probably around one ish, you know, filling out the application, beautiful day, gorgeous day. And all of a sudden here I see these guys coming in. It's probably like five or six of them. And they all had their little styrofoam cups from, you know, being at lunch and, you know, their iced teas to go coming back to the office and, uh, you know, all up and up, you know, cheery or whatever, you know, cutting up. And then the door opens and they're all walking through and he's buzzing them in, you know, and then the guy, the last guy that was coming in, um, his name was Jimmy Adair. And um, he looked looked down at I'll never forget. There's just certain things you never forget. And he just looked down and he just said, are you looking for a job? And I looked him right up and I looked him straight and I said, I sure am. Absolutely. Like that. And then he looks at the guy, the receptionist guy, and he goes, send this young man back to my office when he's done with his application. Like that. And then they all went. And, uh, and then he turned to me and he goes, I'll see you in a few minutes. So, and I was like, he just shut the door and I, I couldn't fill out that application quick enough. I didn't want to lose the momentum or, you know, whatever. And I just went through that application and made sure that every single thing was filled out and easy to read, neat. And, and every and I, I dotted, every T I crossed. mean, it, I, yeah. I proofread it. I was just like, yeah, I was like, here we go. Like that. And that's, that, that's such a, uh, a good example of, persistence because had you you know called up and they said no, we're not hiring you're like okay and went on about yeah. your business yeah or you got down there and, and you know 
but you, but you saying, you know what? I'm going to go down there anyway. Mm-hmm. You got there. You happened to be there at the right time. And it led to a, a 30 career, 30-year run. run. Yeah. Where you've met incredible people, worked with incredible people. Um, I, li- I call it like, you know, uh, WEA, Warner Electric Atlantic, and then, you know, Warner Music Group. Um, it's like, it, that's, that's, I literally came into there as a, you know, I was 21 at the time and still got a lot to learn at 21 years old. And I mean, I literally, it was like, a, that was my college. So that's you, where I got educated. I grew up. So what, what did you get? What position did you get hired for? <laughs> Skid Row. Yeah, literally. And I, when I say that, sure, I started in the warehouse two weeks later, you know, after they hired me. And um, first thing he asked me after, you know, during the interview, he asked me if uh, Tingle, he goes, Sam Tingle, is that your real name? <laughs> like that. And I looked at him, you know, a little puzzled. I wasn't like offended. I just was kind of puzzled and I didn't really say nothing. And then he goes, well, the reason I asked that is, you know, we've got people that work here. And, you know, some of them come from radio and, you know, their names aren't their real names. Oh, They're yeah. kind of like their radio names in the past or what I go, oh, kind of like Johnny Fever. And he goes, yeah. <laughs> and I go, and then I go, and he laughed. And then I was like, uh, I go, Sam Tingle. I go, you know, my mind is pretty, you know, I imagine a lot of stuff, but I couldn't even come up with Tingle. That's my real name. Yeah. And he laughed. He thought that was funny. So he was working in the mailroom doing what? Just oh, setting up. The mailroom. That you're jumping way too quick. <laughs> what? Huh? Mailroom the mail was that was that was dude. I had, I had landed when I got in the. I mean you 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 bypassed the hell. Oh, because you were actually pulling I was in orders. the warehouse. You were pulling orders. Yeah, man. They yeah. gave me a freaking pallet jack. Yeah, a pallet jack with a pallet on it, and a clipboard, and then a stack of orders about four inches deep. Yeah. You know, from record stores to whatever. And I damn pulled those pallet jacks around my first two or three months in there pulling orders with a pallet jack. Yeah. Were you at least, were you doing catalog? It was, or, it was a lot of work. Were you doing new releases or catalog? Both. Okay. Because yeah. at least with new releases, at least you're sending out a box lot maybe. In catalog, you're having to go onesies on it and having to actually go through and, and find the stuff, right? But, yeah. But what you want to hear the one that they, like, they, they vetted you back there. Like, I mean, they, you, you were tested. Like there was people that worked in the warehouse that yeah. was warehouse people. Yeah. And then there was other people in there like me that were wanting to move up and get in that office. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot of it, a little bit of both, but a lot of both. Yeah. You know what I mean? But those people that there were some people that were in charge back there that were like managers or whatever that wanted to go up front, but they were managers and they would try to, they would give you like one, here's an example. There was in the back of the warehouse in this open area. Yeah. There's probably 15 skids of like miscellaneous singles, 45s. Uh-huh. And those come 25 to a little carton and then they come in a bigger box or whatever. It was literally just stacks of singles with no rhyme or reason to them, you know, numbers or whatever. And I kid you not, there's probably like 10 or 15 skids just out in the middle of the floor in this open area in the back of the warehouse. And all of a sudden I'm sitting there one day, I'm green as grass. You know, I don't know anybody back there and I'm pulling this pallet jack around, pulling orders. And this warehouse is huge. And then all of a sudden this guy comes over to me and he goes, Tingle, come here. And I come over there and 
he says, follow me. And I go all the way walking all the way back to the warehouse. And he took me back there to all those singles. Yeah. And that was my job to or- get, I had to organize them, make sure that they were all in 25 count. And I did that for like three weeks. And I, that was when they were thinking that I'd quit. Yeah. I, and I, I went back there and I just started at one skid and I worked my way through like 15 of them. And I mean, if you wanted to know what, you know, any single or 45, what I'd tell you exactly where it was. That's uh, awesome. That was brutal. So yeah. you did, but how long did you, how long did you work in the warehouse? I w- uh, less than a year. Less than a year. Then you yeah. moved up to. That's when I went to mailroom. That's when you became royalties. When well, you actually <laughs> I went, I went, I went to pallet jack. I went from pallet jack to forklift driver. Uh-oh. Now when you got your forklift, yeah. you didn't have to walk anymore. You were on <laughs> like, and getting a forklift was a big deal. Yeah. Like you, it was your lift. Yeah. It was like every morning you had your little charge. You had an area where you had to park it and you charged it. And then when I went to forklift, I liked that better because it was, I was loading diesel rigs basically like if Anderson, you know, which, you know, is the rack that racks Walmarts or whatever. If they ordered 20,000 ACDC back in black yeah. CDs, I would go back there and find the number and I could, I, I was pulling skids. Yeah, exactly. You weren't and, pulling. And I was loading, loading diesel rigs with skids, just going right into the truck and dropping them in. So you went from there, then you went to mailroom. Yeah. In the mailroom, you just sort mail. And are you the mailroom is not that it wasn't in the mail. It's there's mailrooms like in offices, but, but you were ours, actually sorting out posters and promos. And ours all was that. called it was called the promo cage. Yeah, and when I say cage, that's exactly what it was. It's big chain link fence. I'd say probably, I think they were like twelve foot chain link fence. Yeah, and then on top of the chain link fence was barbed wire that looked like a prison. You yeah. know what I mean? And um it was in the back corner of the warehouse and it was like chain link open gate that chain on it had to be locked at all times. Yeah. We had a cage at music network too for all the promos and all that kind of good stuff. So people weren't just snagging. And this is back then, you know, this is way, you know, way before, you know, this is 89, you know? And, um, that's where all the records came. The advanced copies of, you know, massive records, massive, you know, that's where everything came and it was staged in that promo cage and delivered to the executives up front. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you're talking records sitting back there a week, two weeks before street date, sometimes a month Yeah, of course before street a, date. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like high security. Yeah. You know? And, um, but yeah, that's, and that was the promo cage. There's four of us that worked back there. How long were you back there? We always fought like cats and dogs. All four of us. Why is that? Four strong. Huh? Why were y'all Just fighting? Four strong personalities. You Who know? was in the cage? Huh? Who was in the cage? Anybody um, that I know? Uh, I don't think you know him. It was uh, uh, Rick Ross. Um, no, Rick Ross. No, not the not that Rick Ross. <laughs> uh, Rick Ross, uh, Philip Peeler, uh, myself, and uh, Jeff Jordan. No, I don't know any of those yeah. guys except for Rick Ross, but he's uh, not the. I real mean, we've, we're we're all grown up and went into the. the in, you know, different industries and, you know, music industry, Yeah, like Rick, you know, he's still in the music industry and, um, uh, yeah. Cause he's a rapper. Huh? No, yeah, not but- that Rick. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we all, you know, we all just, you know, strong per- I mean, and we didn't hate each other. We just fought sometimes. You know, y'all are all trying. Y'all had the same kind of personalities, right? Huh? I'm assuming y'all, no, had- we were different, but strong. Well, you had a strong yeah. personality. That's yeah. what, and y'all had drive and all of you were trying to, Yeah. did all of y'all ultimately get higher positions at Warner brothers or, in a, in a different company, but the uh, same. different companies. Yeah. 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 
So how long were you at the mailroom? Uh, probably another, I don't know, almost maybe a year. Yeah. A little under a year. Yeah. I'm terrible with time, like how long, you know, it seemed like an eternity. So when is the, <laughs> when, when does the real fun begin? Huh? Which position does the real fun begin where everything oh, it that, changed my life? But which position is huh? that? Which position is that where there was, it's called, uh, they were called AMR. Yeah. And it was a account marketing representative. Right. Okay. The, the dream job that that's, this is the job that I was introduced to. We, this right? is a job in your head. You thought I the, wanted whenever you were that kid at Camelot. That was, yeah. Yeah. This is, I met the guy that came in that did the displays and the windows did all the displays and in cap displays. Like if a new, you know, Nita Baker record or a new U2 album came out. You know, he came in, did the window display, and then he went over and did a big in cap display, took photos of it, made sure that you had an in store play copy in the store, got you to put it on the rec, you know, play it while he's in there, just gets everyone hyped up on the record. That's That was the first introduction that I had now, to. Now, what year did you become an AMR? Uh, 89. 89. Towards the end of 89. So, yeah. what, was, what were the hot records that year? Do you remember? Oh, the first, uh, my, one of the first things that I did was uh, when I went into the mailroom was the uh, Dr. Feelgood album, Motley Crue. Okay. Yeah. I made like, I had to make like something like 4,000 kits for the to Dr. send out dollars. And then, I, and then I got promoted out of the mailroom and then I ended up working, you know, in the mail, you know, working the, um, putting up displays and stuff for the album, like tour support and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, so then if you said 89, I'm trying to think would have been, what would have been huge in 89, but I can't, there would definitely Everything. have been, a, there would have, there would have been a Metallica album that year, right? Uh, yeah. Or shortly after it would have been yeah. ride, ride the, the lightning, lightning and all those that were already out master of puppets. Um, yeah. the big, the big, big Metallica record that I worked was, um, uh, the black one, black album. Uh, okay, yeah, because that was in 91 or 90? 90. I want to say it was 90. Yeah, I think you're I'm right. terrible with dates back, you know, looking back. So, but at that time, Warner, WIA, Warner Electric Atlantic, Warner Music Group was the number one record company in the world. Yeah. Not, I mean, literally, we would post up, you know, every week on the chart. It would not be uncommon for us to have like five albums in the top 10. It was unbelievable time. Well, you guys had Interscope originally, right? Yeah. So you had Nine Inch Nails. Uh, oh, everything came through. Downward Spiral, that album. You had Dr. Dre, The Chronic. Snoop Dogg. Doggy Style, which was the... When, Hands down, the, the biggest the biggest album. The biggest album I probably ever worked. Yeah, for me too. Out of the box. Except, yeah. Well, two, I think Tupac Machiavelli was pretty big, but I mean, he was dead. So, it wasn't that. Or allegedly dead. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't Snoop Dogg, though. Yeah. Yeah. Snoop Dogg was huge. I mean, yeah, the Doggy Style album yeah. was massive. I remember. We, I think we had a midnight sale for that. I mean, it was huge. Remember the guy? Um, remember the guy that played the record executive in the video? No, uh-uh. for Snoop Dogg. Um, he's behind the desk in the video, and he's kind of like a chubby white guy. His name was Steve Bergman. Super cool guy. Yeah, he worked for Interscope. He might still. I don't know, but he came to Atlanta, and we all went out and. Um, Rode around Atlanta on a bus with the uh, Snoop Dogg Doggy Style album. Oh yeah, yeah, and he was playing it while we were on the bus the whole time, and that was really cool. Um, yeah, because you had Atlantis Morissette's album, Jagged Little Pill was on Interscope. Right? No, was she on Maverick? She was on Maverick. That's right, she's on Maverick, which was Madonna's um, 
label, and she had and Madonna had Candle Box, which was huge. Those was, were the two biggies out of the box. Yeah, it was Candle Box and Madonna. Yeah, I mean not Madonna, record. but um, Alanis Morissette. So with the AMR, you're going around, you're doing displays in and, record stores, and record stores, over, and everything. all over the state. Yeah. But now, are you having any? Are you actually working with the artists when they come into town at this point, or no? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, it just depends. More, more of the big parties that we used to have. Yeah. You know, but the funny thing is when I interviewed for that job, everybody was gunning for that job. I yeah. mean, like the whole building, the whole warehouse or whatever. And um, I'll never forget when Pat Botenrider called me up to the office, shut the door and told me that I had the job. And then he handed me a plane ticket to San Francisco <laughs> and a packet with my hotel reservation and everything. I hadn't even been out in the field yet. I haven't met. No, and then here I go to the WIA convention in San Francisco. Yeah. And when I say WIA convention, that's Warner, Electra, Atlantic, every label is coming out there all the way across the entire hotel. We're talking massive downtown hotel, completely rented out by the entire company. And um, that was my first WIA convention where I met my counterparts, you know, that I'd be working, you know, with, you know, the managers in the uh, L.A. offices, the New York offices. I mean, it's unbelievable, you know. And um, but, yeah, that was that literally that one interview changed my life. Yeah. I mean, there's people that you come across that you meet that are mentors or whatever. But there's that one little decision. And that was Pat Botenrider. He's the one that put me in the mailroom. And then he's also the one that put me in the AMR job. That's funny because I remember seeing his name on the, they used to send out promo forms out to the mm -hmm. record stores. Oh yeah. And you would, you'd say, I need, you'd check off. I need uh, I need uh, some Those were called merch requests. Merch requests. I get it. Yeah. We'd get merch requests and Pat Botenrider's name was on yep. those merch requests. Uh, merch requests. Yeah. That was him. Yeah. yeah. You'd, you'd fill out, well, I need uh, five Metallica posters and three flats Sure, and, you know all that kind like of. Like when I was stuff. in the mailroom, yeah. we would always have a stack of those. Probably, I mean, just a big basket of them. And when we were slow down, that's what we would do. We'd yeah. go pull merch requests or whatever. But you talk about history, you know. What I'm really, you know, really, really, truly grateful for for someone that loves music is, I mean, we all know that that really big height of the industry was the '70s, the '80s, and the '90s. That was like the big. Yeah, you came. Yeah, that's that that those those thirty years there, seventies, eighties, nineties. Yeah, that was like the juice. That was like we're going big. You know, you got, what the, mean? Tail, you got the tail end of it. You got ten of ten of your thirty. Well, eighty nine, it was cranking. Yeah, I mean, it was still going up like a rocket ship, and I just jumped on and held on for dear life. But talking with people like Pat Botenrider, the thing that I'm really just being a person that loves music. I mean, I literally got to work with amazing professionals that would come up with the most incredible marketing ideas, I mean, ever, right? And they worked, they worked those records in their 20s, in the 70s. Yeah. I mean, we're talking Van Halen, Jared Neff, Van Halen 1. You know, took Van Halen, they were opening for Black Sabbath, he picked him up from the airport. He took him to Peaches for the in-store. You know, Steve Jones, Atlantic Records. He freaking worked with Bon Scott, the whole ACDC back in black, the Southern Rock from Blackfoot. 
you know, all that stuff that I grew up on that I that my brother had, you know, he actually worked those records, the bad companies and, you know, in excess and, you know, all the stuff that I've been listening to as a kid, as a teenager or whatever, Electra, you know, Alan Golden, Alan Golden, he freaking worked with Jim Morrison, you know? So I, and I mean, these were people that I was breaking bread with at lunch and hearing and, all their stories and, and oh man, I would, I would wear them out. Yeah. Like with stories and, but they were, they all had huge hearts, you know, and, um, and they knew that I was passionate and they always, I'm truly grateful for They, they always like aligned me, you know, with great projects, with great projects yeah. and would loop me in and yeah, it was fun. And they were right there beside me like yeah. when we'd work, you know, when we'd work big records like Atlantis and Lincoln Park and, I mean, they'd come in your office and go, this is what we want to do. And I mean, it was, it was on, it was game on, you know, it's awesome. Incredible. Amazing time period. So when did you actually start working firsthand with artists when they would come in and you had to go take them to the venues and, uh, and, and developing, well, I, I went from AMR to, um, like artist development rep. That's like when you work in like brand new artists, yep. like no one's ever heard of them. You know, and I took a job with Electra. They had an opening, and um, Alan Golden says, I'm recommending you for that job just out of the blue one day. And I yeah. go, okay, like that, you know. And um, nothing against Electra, but at that time period, I took the job, you know. But the first thing that I did, we had a – so funny. I mean, I remember it vividly. I took that job, you know, and then we had like a um, – an alarm go off in the building. Yeah. And when the alarm goes off in a building that big, I mean, you got the warehouse in the back at the time and the offices, tons of people, tons of people up front. And then this alarm goes off and it's raining. So everybody's going out and getting in their cars. So I go outside and I jumped in uh, a car with Steve Jones. And, and the thing I love about Steve, Steve always had something new that he wanted you to hear. Yeah. You know, and he go, oh man, you gotta hear this. And then he'd like pull a CD out and we'd like crank it up or whatever. And then while we were just sitting there listening to music in the rain, waiting for this fire drill thing to pass over, um, I told him, I go, look, I just want to let you know that I'm taking this job with Electra, but I just want to let you know that my heart's, you know, with Atlantic. That's where I'd love to be. You know, I've always loved Atlantic Records, you know, since I was a teenager reading Rolling Stone magazine, you know, reading articles about Ahmed Erdogan and, Led Zeppelin and, you know, ACDC, all that stuff, you know. And um, and uh, we just had a great conversation. I got, you know, I just told him that's where I'd like to be. And he goes, he goes, absolutely, I got you. Like that, you know, he just, he, he absorbed, he didn't say I'm going to get you a job or whatever. He just, you know, one of the things I learned, you know, early on is tell people what you want and you might get it. Yeah. You know, so I just told him what I wanted, you know. And, um, and then the Atlantic one came over and we did some maneuvering and, um, they switched me over to Atlantic and then went, and then man, Atlantic got red hot. <laughs> I mean, like red hot, like quick. So when you were, and then Electric, it was like, it was literally nonstop. Huh? So when you were with Electric, did you do the ADR at Electric? Artist development? Yeah. Yeah. For a short <laughs> period of time. Yeah. Who was, what year was that? Um, I was, I remember working, um, Adina Howard, remember her? Yeah. Yeah. I worked well, Adina yeah. Howard. 
she had that song. I think Dr. Dre produced it. What was that song? I let can't. me ride. Yeah. Let, no. Yeah. No. Was that it? I think no. I don't know. Dina Howard. I remember her having. She's kind of dirty a little bit, but uh, yeah. I think Dr. Dre produced it. Yeah. Um. Uh. What's the guy from uh, Dave Stewart? I worked one oh, of his the, uh, the Rhythmics. I worked yeah. one of his records. Yeah. Um. There was. I was there for. I wasn't there that long. Yeah. But you were only doing the new artist at that time, right? Yes. Uh, okay. So you well, never like, like Dave Stewart. He's an established artist, but he wasn't as an established solo, solo, as a solo artist. artist. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Cause so you wouldn't have worked. I was going to say, <clears throat> excuse me, Electra, you didn't work any of the key sweat records. Did you? Oh, I worked key sweat records, man. We used to sell those things like yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. We worked, I worked Keith, uh, key sweat records. And then he had that group that he put together called silk where we worked those. And, um, was yeah. he in, he lives in Georgia. Yeah. Was he in that Le- was was he in a? Uh, he wasn't in the super group with Levert, was he? Gerald Levert. Oh yeah, LSG. Yeah, LSG. Levert Sweet Gill. Yeah, that yeah. was huge. Oh, oh yeah, God. yeah. We <laughs> sold that like crazy. Oh yeah. As yeah. I'm telling, how many babies were born nine months later after that? <laughs> but but <laughs> after that thing came out. But when I switched over and um, uh, started working on the Atlantic side, I mean we we got red hot. We from Sugar Ray to. Um, Hootie and the Blowfish was just huge. Oh my, yeah, we saw that it. was right about the time I switched over. It was and it exploded, and all that stuff was coming out of our market, the South. And then Hootie, and then Edwin McCain came after that, and then um, the other big one, huge, was Matchbox Twenty. That mm-hmm. one was close. That was close to home to us. That was down in Orlando as well. But that record was Seven out. Mary Three, huge. Seven Mary Three was a huge record too. That Matchbox Twenty record was out for a little bit before it really oh, took Jewel, off. It took us like two years to break Jewel. I remember we had one. We had a Matchbox Twenty in our cheap bin because somebody had sold like a promo or whatever. We had it like for three nine nine. And Kendall, who was my sister, my friend, and you met Kendall. He was in the wedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to his house. <clears throat> he found that Matchbox Twenty record mm-hmm. and he put it on. He's listening to it and he was like, "I can sell this." Mm-hmm. He was like, "Order me some." I was like, "All right." <clears throat> Excuse me. So he started playing it, mm-hmm. and it started selling. We started selling it in our store. It wasn't selling nationally at the time. Mm-hmm. Same with <clears throat> years previous. Uh, same thing happened with the Hootie and the Blowfish. He popped that one open because his friend actually lived in South Carolina, and it said, "Hey, you got to check out this Hootie and the Blowfish." Because I think he lived in that college town where they were really big. Mm-hmm. Pop that open. We'd sell. You know, he'd play it, and we'd sell that before it took off nationally you know but yeah mm-hmm. those were huge records i mean incredibly huge well with matchbox 20 um you're right it was out for a minute you know and uh, but you gotta remember what we were competing against i mean that was the industry was exploded i mean it was like there was huge records coming out weekly and it was you know tons of competition you know to break a record or whatever and then steve jones came over to my office and he goes um so Matchbox 20 is breaking a little bit in Birmingham. We're getting some traction over there. He goes, the thing is, he goes, they're playing three songs over there on the station. They're playing um, 3 a.m., Push, and Long Day. All three of them are in, like, solid rotation over there. The program director loves the band, but records are selling over there. Thing is, we don't know which one – we want to know which one's – it's like really kicking in. We don't know which one's, you know, moving the needle. And they sent me over there 
for like two or three days just to, you know, market, check stock on in the stores, do displays or whatever. And mainly, though, they wanted me to hang out in the record store and figure out which song it was, you yeah. know. And, and I would literally, I would literally be in those stores over there. And, you know, this is when everybody was coming and buying records. When they hear something on the radio, they pulled in record store and they went and bought the record. Yeah. And people were coming in and it was so hot that people would come in and I would see them pick up the record and walk to the register. And I would like ask them, I go, Hey, how you doing? And, you know, I had posters and stuff and I go, I work with the label and uh, I'm just curious. We're glad that you're buying the record, but I'm just curious. What was the song that made you want? And it was like, push everyone, push, push. Everybody was just push. That was the, that was the one. And then I called Steve Jones. I go hands down, no doubt this song push is like everyone's flipping out over it. And then that was the next single that they took nationwide. And um, what does that say? 20 million later. Yeah. 20 million. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Incredible. And, um, and uh, it was, that was an awesome time. And it was funny. Rob Thomas came to town. We, we did a couple of in stores in Birmingham. We did one when they first, 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 you know, were starting to break. And um, I went over there picked up the band and we did an in-store at a place called um, Magic Platter in Birmingham in Hoover, Alabama. And uh, awesome little suburb, you know, just outside the outskirts of town. And uh, we set up an in-store with them. I went over there and um, it was fun. The band performed acoustic. We're talking a record store about the size of, you know, a good living room and dining room put together. Just a little small, little box independent record store. Little thousand square foot, huh? Little thousand square yeah, foot in record. the strip center, you yeah, know. Yeah. And um, we get over there. I go and pick them up and everything. And um, uh, Rob, Thomas, and uh, Kyle, the drummer, with me, and the bands in the van behind me. And we went up there and uh, visited a couple of stores along the way, you know, other indies and stuff. And then when we got to the store, um, as soon as I got there, uh, Steve called, you know from his office just to check in with me to see how everything was going. And I said, man, it's all great. We're here. We're excited. And, uh, they're about to get set up and he goes, cool. I was just checking in. And then, um, uh, they got all set up and everything. And I mean, Rob Thomas is a cool guy, yeah. you know, <clears throat> but you meet people, you know, artists, you know, you work with over the years and then you meet certain artists and like soon as you you're sitting there with them, you know, you're like, man, this guy's going to he he is a freaking star. And it's nothing over the top the way he acts or whatever. It's just the way he carries himself and the way he talks and the way just the, his actions and I was like, man, this guy. I go, I haven't seen him perform live yet or whatever, but man, this guy's got it like that. And then I'll never forget it. We got him all set up and everything. And they were just chilling. Everybody's sitting there. Store's packed, you know. And uh, they opened the whole in-store with a Rolling Stone song. <laughs> it was incredible. It was so good. They're, I mean, they're all great players, those guys in that band. They can all play. And um, it was just a cover. He was just wanting to get warmed up. And, you know, he'd been in a car riding around and stuff. And he opened up with a – I wanted to say, I think it's You Can't Always Get What You Want, something like that. And that's yeah. funny you say that you know – Sometimes you just know immediately. And then there's other times where um, you don't know as much because 
we went to, you took me to see Dave Matthews and we watched it, whatever it was, you know, I'm not a huge Dave Matthews fan. I can respect what they do. Mm-hmm. And, but the artists we were there to see, or you were there uh, to see and to help work. He said, Hey, we got to go. Let's go meet him back here at the back. He's back here in some corner of the auditorium arena, like signing autographs or whatever. And I walk up and nobody's there and everything. And so you're like, Hey, this is Jonathan. He works for music network, you know, yada, yada, yada. And he said, Oh yeah, we got, he said, Oh, he said, I'm from, was he from Boone, North Carolina? Anyway, the guy was that nobody was there, uh, getting their, you know, getting his autograph or anything was Jason Mraz. Oh yeah. Which then not long after that blew blew up. up, blew up. Yeah. But he just seemed like us. Oh, yeah, I just think, oh, regular dude. Yeah. Whatever. I remember one time. <laughs> I remember one time we had a at Music Network. We had um, because we were always having to the listeners out there. The label would you know bring a lot of these new artists, um, and have lunch. They bring lunch for everybody oh, yeah. and, and everything, and say, hey, and introduce the introduce them to introduce the new artist to the to everybody there, and hopefully the buyer of the the um, the buyer of the company will buy a bunch of the records and all that kind of good stuff. Sure. So, I, so, I mean, I was so used to that, that like, eventually you just, I had work to do that day. I wasn't yeah. studying it and everything. And, uh, so I'm walking down the aisle where all the hot stock was and here comes the artist and she's with her mom and dad. And she was like, and I just kept walking and she was like, what's up? I was like, Hey, what's up? And just went on about my business. And mm-hmm. I didn't even, anyway, it was pink. Mm-hmm. But she hadn't had a, you know, she hadn't had a hit, and oh, yeah. I didn't know who she was, and I was just like, "What's up?" Like it was just so commonplace to to meet these people that that were nobody knew who they were, yeah. you know, and then for them to blow up later on or you know whatever. But so anyway, back to uh, Matchbox Twenty, they blew up. Oh, and, big time! Yeah, yeah. And then we came back and did another in store in Alabama, and they were playing the arena, like sold out arena. And then we did another in-store back at Magic Platter after that, and um, it was huge. And, like, wrapped around the whole strip center. I mean, to the point there were so many people there. At the end of it, we had to um, line everyone up on the sidewalk, and we just brought the band down the sidewalk, and they signed everybody's stuff because they had to go to the show, and it was huge. It was big, you know, but it was fun. And you didn't even realize at the time, or maybe you did. Did you know Jeff Tomei at the time? I didn't, no. Full circle. You met yeah. Jeff later. Yeah, he saw was him he yesterday. Enge- <laughs> he enge- yeah he engineered the Matchbox yeah. Twenty record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he works at uh, Cock of the Walk Studios here in Kennesaw, Georgia. He's he pretty much pretty much runs the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for local artists, big artists. You know, there's no telling who's in there. You know, he's worked with everyone from uh, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Matchbox Twenty. He did their out. He did the, uh, the Sammy's Dream. Sammy's Dream. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, uh, Jerry Cantrell, which is, he's one of my favorites. And, um, yeah, he's worked with lots of, like, the satellites, I think, uh, guys from those. Yeah, tons of stuff. He's worked with everybody, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So one of my favorite stories is uh, you hanging out with Dio. Just oh, Dio is awesome. I've worked with him twice. Once with once on um, By Himself on the Lock Up the Wolves tour. Yeah. And um, that sounds so cool, doesn't it? Lock up the wolves. <laughs> that sounds like Dia. Yeah. And then, um, and then also with uh, Black Sabbath right before he passed. Um, yeah. When they did the, uh, when they got back together with um, 
Were they doing a dual thing? Were they having Ozzy and Dio do the? No, that it was, was uh, just... it was uh, Rhino Records put out um, Black Sabbath, the Dio years. Yeah. And um, they did a tour yeah. with Dio. They got back with Dio and did a whole tour. And we put out a record like greatest hits, you know, from the Dio years yeah. with Black Sabbath. And then I think they had a, they had a couple of new songs on there. And um, they did two in-stores, one in New York. And I used to have an account with Value Music called, um, the name of the company was Value Music. And they had stores all over the country. And they had a store right in the middle of Mohegan Sun Casino. And uh, we did an in-store there to where you bought the record. You got a cool laminate. And, you know, once you put the laminate on, that let us know that you were there for the in-store. And we did it after show. And um, it was a huge, huge event. But the cool thing about is when we were doing the artwork for the laminate, I was working with this lady uh, that worked with us in our office, real cool girl, really good on the computer and the graphics and stuff. And me and her created the laminate for, you know, the event that mm -hmm. the consumer was going to receive. And, um, I was going back and forth with Wendy Dio. They all have their own manager. Right. But at the end of the day, Wendy Dio was the one, which is Ronnie's wife. I wish I had saved those emails because I was literally emailing her directly. Yeah. And I'll never forget, Amanda and me were like dialing in the laminate, and like, you know, this is the front, this is the back. And she did an incredible job with the artwork. They gave us art images to work with, and then we had to put it all together. Yeah. And we put it all together, and we slept on it like 24 hours, came back the next day and kind of looked at it. And I go, man, I don't care what they say. I mean, they'll probably shred it to pieces and make us change it, or they'll do it or whatever, but that's a good-looking laminate. Yeah. You know? And... um and she goes, all right. And I said, okay, I'm sending it in. And then I sent it to her. And, you know, L.A. Times were like three hours behind us. And then I went to lunch, and then I come back from lunch and got a reply back from Wendy Dio. I go, this is approved. It looks fantastic. Thank you so much. And I'm like, oh, my God. Did you, get to, did you get to meet her? Uh, Wendy, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she was at the show. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And um, we did that at Mohegan Sun and the – the only thing that was real kind of, we actually it was Megadeth was before show. We did Megadeth had their debut. I mean, not their debut album, their new album had just come out. So Megadeth was opening the show and uh, Black Sabbath was after, you know, the headliner. So we did Megadeth before the show, same scenario, you buy the record, you know, get an armband or whatever it was to meet, you know, Megadeth, get it signed. And we, it's kind of like a mall like setting yeah. there. And um, we did them first, and then after show was Black Sabbath. I, oh. Looking back on it, I still can't believe we pulled it off, but we did. Was Megadeth on, on your label? At that time, they were. Yeah. yeah. How was Dave? They were on uh, Roadrunner. How was Dave? Nice nice. Everything you read about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it. I'm just leave it at that. that. You know? But Dio was, you know, because Dio has this whole persona as, you know, like. Amazing. As evil. One of the most and, incredible. You know, no. But no. Hands down, everything that you hear about Dio, you know, like I lived it. I mean, and I'm not saying that to be arrogant, you know, yeah. but Geezer Butler and Wendy were on um, Eddie Trunk's show and I'm sitting there watching them, you know, and this was after he had passed. Yeah. And listening to Geezer Butler, you know, talk about Ronnie and they were like, Ronnie was the guy that was after the show you would always see him over there talking with a couple of fans backstage, hanging out, having a beer or whatever, you know, and 
that is exactly what happened with me on that Lock Up the Wolves tour. You know, me and my girlfriend at the time, I called her and I was like, hey, I got to work a meet and greet tonight with Dio. She was like, cool, like that, you know, and I go, it's at the Civic Center in Atlanta. And um, she goes, well, my friend from out of town's here. And I go, that's cool. She can come, you know, because I had a laminate, you know, to go back there and do everything. And um, I go there, introduce myself and just touch base before the show, told him to have a great show and all that. And he's like, cool, we'll see you after the show or whatever. And then after the show, I bring some people back, some radio people, a couple of retailers, and then I'm there with uh, my girlfriend and her friend or whatever. And we're like doing the meet and greet thing. And Dio is just super nice. And I'm introducing him and I'm doing the pictures and making sure that he's got the pen to do the autographs and all that stuff. And like halfway through it, this was like the coolest thing, like halfway through the meet, like we're still working and there's people in the room that we got to take care of, you know, and he knows that. I mean, he's a pro, right? He knows how it worked, you know, and uh, like halfway through it, he just looks at me and he goes, Hey man, after this is over, why don't you and your girlfriend and you guys hang out? We'll have some beers. But we're, and I go, awesome. That sounds fantastic. He goes, cool. And then we went back to work, you know, went back to doing the pictures. And, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. And then, so after it was all done, it was me, Ronnie, um, my girlfriend and uh, her friend, we're just hanging out in this little room, just talking with him. And I'll never forget. I was sitting on a cooler, a beer. He drinks Guinness beer. And I was just sitting on a cooler and um, I'm, I'm just sitting there and all of a sudden this guy comes in and I get up because he wanted something in the cooler and it was Simon Wright, the drummer. And uh, Simon Wright played with ACDC for a while. He was on, um, I can't remember the exact album. I want to say Who Made Who maybe? One of those, one of the, one of the hiatus that Phil Rudd had, you know, and um, it was really cool. It was just a great night, just a lot of, but that was him, you know, when I was watching that thing with Eddie Trunk and listening to uh, Geezer Butler talk, I was like, wow, I, I literally, he's exactly right. That was, and I lived that, which was really fun, you know. And then when that cool thing, you remember the Mean Joe Green commercial? Mm-hmm, with the Coke. <laughs> In the 70s? Yes. I, you want to hear my Dio Mean Joe Green story? <laughs> <laughs> so so we're at the, uh, we just finished the signing at Mohegan Sun, and um you know, just ran through 500 rabid fans, you know, met them and, you know, did the signing and all that stuff. And we're on the way back. I'm walking them all back to their dressing rooms. And, um, you know, they all had their own little rooms. And then it was just me and Ronnie. And I was walking him back to his room or whatever. And then Wendy was in his dressing room hanging out. And uh, she's there. And I just, hey, you know, everything went great. And she was like, cool. And he is he he is very very small man like real short yeah and I'll, and uh, and then he just turns around and he slapped me on the chest you know and I remember I literally looked down he slapped me on the chest and he looked up at me and he goes you did good kid like that <laughs> and I said it was a pleasure like that and I says y'all have a great night I'm gonna go out and watch the show he goes you know no it's after the show I'm sorry and um and uh, and that was it I just kind of went on my way and went to my room yeah yeah. yeah. What's been some of your favorite meet and greets you've done? Huh? What's been some of your favorite meet and greets you've done? 
Um, it's the artist you've, you've some had. of them are just weird. Yeah, some of them are like a dog and pony show, just run it through, and the wink and some blink. Some of them are stupid. Because huh? when I met the when I met the Stones, uh, it was a wink and blink. Like they said, all right, we're coming. My like, brother has Whoa. the best take on them. He he, like I took him to <laughs> I took him to a Van Halen meet and greet once. Yeah, yeah. and um, it was for uh, it might have been for that live record or something like that. And um, there was like 300 people back there at Lakewood, and everyone had a number, like a group number, you oh, know? Yeah. And so you could be in a number, like a group with people you didn't even know, and you, they called your number. I literally watched Van Halen meet 300-something people in probably less than 10 minutes. That's the way it was with the Stones, because Peggy Daniel, who was the rep for, was she an EMI rep? I believe so. She took me and Carl to the Rolling Stones and we had, we got, we was going to get to meet them. <clears throat> and, uh, so they put about 30 of us on one side. That was all retail mm -hmm. uh, directly across from us was uh radio. Mm -hmm. And there was like 30 people over there. Uh, what was the, what was the nine, nine X? What was the crew there? Jimmy and, uh, Barnes, Leslie and yeah, Jimmy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Leslie and Jimmy were over there on that side and there's a backdrop between both of us. <clears throat> Somebody comes in and says, okay, they're going to come in. They don't, you know, don't, uh, don't ask them to sign anything. Don't, you know, all the rules and everything. They're going to take two photos. If you're ready, you're ready. If not, they're moving on. And they literally came through, shook everybody on the front row's hand like twice. And it was like blink, blink. And they like took them over to the radio side, did the same thing. And it was so quick. And the, poor, <laughs> the bad thing about it is poor Peggy. She's the one who takes us. And she's not in the picture. She got buried in the crowd. All you can see, if you look at the picture, you can see her feet. Mm -hmm. And you can follow the legs, and the legs go to nowhere. There's no body there. She's behind somebody. All you see is just feet and legs. <laughs> so oh, she's wow. the one who took us. She didn't even get a picture with them. But anyway. Oh, bummer. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, usually meet and greets are like really odd and they awkward. Are. And, you know, sometimes the artist is like, you know, been traveling all day and, you know, or you know, been rushing and, you know, it, it, I mean, that's kind of a weird question. Just, you know, which ones were my favorites? I, I guess the main thing, the, the, the most memorable, I guess I'm saying most memorable because they were so, just like you said with Dio, he was just so good to work with. He was so, you know, you know what I'm saying? It was just, yeah. it was just a good time you had when you was working that, working that meet and greet and he made it easy and he really like was there for the fans. And well, here's the craziest time. one that like the, which wasn't planned that really like really messed with me like big time, like messed with me the whole night. So, um, the black crows were opening for ZZ top. Oh no. At the this is, oh, this is the one, this, this is the this one where biggie. they lost. This, this is a biggie. This is like meeting Mount Rushmore. But this is when they lost their sponsorship, right? When this is last, this, it was this. two shows. I went to the first show. Okay. The second show is when all hell broke loose. Cause they were being sponsored by Miller light. Yep, and, and Chris Robinson didn't like it and you know, whatever. Um, so I go to the show, I'm hanging out there. And you were there for ZZ Top, right? Because the crows no, were the crows were Black on Crows, there. they were both on uh Warner. Oh, were they? Yeah. Black okay. Crows were on Deaf American, which was Oh, that's right. But Deaf American's not Warner anymore. It's I don't I th know where they are. I think it's universal. Anyway, go ahead. So we're there backstage, meet and greet, just hanging out. I wasn't working. I was just there to, you know, party, hanging out. And I'm watching the Black Crows sign, do their meet and greet. And uh, big, huge room. 
but they had the room sectioned. Like there's a big curtain that went right down the middle of this room, you know, that split the rooms up. And yeah. I was like, okay, cool, whatever. I'm just hanging there having a beer. And then all of a sudden I hear like Velcro, you know, like opening. Yeah. And I look over at the curtain and um, here comes Jared Neff. And Jared Neff was the regional for Warner Brothers. He's like an uncle to me. I've known him, I feel like, my whole life, yeah. you know. And um, he was the regional for Warner Brothers at that time. And uh, he's just a character, awesome personality. I mean, fun, just a fun guy. And um, always up to mischief. He likes to pull pranks and stuff. And I'm like, oh, my God, what in the world does he do? So he comes out of the curtain, He and then he Velcroed it back exactly the way it was and then he sees me and he comes over and he goes hey how you doing and i introduce him to my friend and you know we're sitting there and she's hey cool you know whatever and we're hanging out and then all of a sudden he goes um leans into my ear and he goes here's what i want you to do he goes i'm gonna walk back through that curtain and i'm gonna close the curtain and then he goes i want you to wait about 30 seconds or so and then i want you and your date come in there come come through the curtain just like I did shut it and then I want you to just sit down and be cool and I go okay and he goes cool see you in a minute and then away he went and I'm like alright this ought to be weird and then you know I did what he told me uh, my date goes in first and I haven't looked to see nothing. She goes in, and then I immediately turned around, and I sealed up the curtain, and I shut it. And I turn around, and there's a couch and a love seat, a lamp, a little table, just kind of like a little small makeshift living room type setting, you know. And I sit down on the couch. Jared's over here to my left, and smack dab right in front of me, and his manager it was Mick Jagger. <laughs> Drinking a beer, and yeah, and I think there was beer. I had a beer or whatever. Like, we gave us a beer or whatever, and uh, Jared introduced me to Mick Jagger, <laughs> and and he was filming that movie Free Jack. Oh yeah, in Atlanta. Oh yeah, and the Black Crows, you know, just come out and there was huge, you know, a lot of hype around them and yeah, everything. A lot of heat. And uh, literally. Um, that was crazy. And then I'll never forget when we walked out. It was just for a little bit, just a brief moment. And um, and then when we all left, he went first. And I'll never forget, you know, like when they're breaking down, you know, bands, everyone's backstage. There's, you know, people moving stuff, yada, yada, yep. you know, in with the out, out with the, you know, just lots of movement. And I'm sitting there and then I'm watching him walk past all these people, you know, that are stage hands that are moving stuff and as he is walking across the back of that omni everyone just everything stops like as soon as when they look and see who it is like someone would be like pushing a cart yeah and then every everywhere he went everything just all of a sudden it was like it was a pause button was just being hit on every People step just, stopping. just stop and going is that who i think it is <laughs> you know and i remember watching everything stop and then he and then he left and then I couldn't even enjoy ZZ Top knowing the fact that I just met, met Mick Jagger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd have given anything to have a phone camera back then. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, my the only thing I take away from meeting the Stones was uh, shaking Keith Richards' hand was like shaking a hand with a mechanic. I mean, rough, rough, yeah. and 
if I'd have looked down, it probably would have been greasy, mm-hmm. been calloused. I mean, the hand was the roughest hand I've ever, one of the roughest hands I've ever shook. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And you know, and I mean, I've, I've, it's crazy. Like starting, you know, getting to the point or, or the passion, you know I mean? I mean, I'm not trying to sound arrogant by any means, but not everybody works in the music business. You know what I mean? And, you know, growing up, I was aligned with so much. Like, to me, the music business, even as a young kid, it all seemed like it was right down the street. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Like, literally, everything was approachable. Everything was obtainable. In the world that I grew up in. Yeah. And, you know, I'll give you a couple examples of that. You know, like I can remember my mom going to watch them film Smokey and the Bandit like it was no big deal. She goes, hey, I'm going to drop you off at your grandmother's. Um, me and so-and-so are going down and they're filming a movie. Burt Reynolds is filming them. And that ended up being like Smokey and the Bandit, you yeah. know. And at the Lakewood... Uh- Amphitheater, right? Yeah. And I've got slides that my mom took, like pictures that, you know, like old school Kodak, you know, just like culture and stuff like that. And um, you got to see Elvis. uh, That's my first con. That right there. That story is great because I picture, because when you tell the story, it's when you had a little, you had a hissy fit. And that's the reason you got to see Elvis. Not because well, my mom was tired. Yeah. She's seen him all week. No, not because you were not. Here's another key back to persistence. Okay. Oh yeah, because y'all the it, bitch. it was on Sunday. Yeah, right. How were you? It was a mad night show, right? It was a. It was, I remember we were coming home from a church function. Okay. Yeah, so and assuming it was it's a it was a matinee show because he would do he would sell out like a, you know four or five nights in a city and then he would do a matinee show the last day of the show to where it was like two last day of the the run they would he'd do a matinee the last day of the run yeah yeah gotcha. and it would start like um at two-ish around there or yeah. whatever and that me and my mom and Jane Peavy a longtime you know family friend um and then my mom's friend Sylvia and uh, Tony and all them they were at the show but me and my mom and Jane Peavy went to the Omni and we sat and we went to go see Elvis. That was the first concert. But you weren't going to go to Elvis, so you had tickets, right? Yeah, mom was just like, I don't know. She talked to she she mentioned us going, and I was like, we're going. And how old were you? Seventy six. I was born in six. I was like eight, eight nine ish. Eight nine. Yeah. Yeah. And we. we I picture you in a little powder blue. Uh, a powder. <laughs> I picture you in a little powder blue leisure suit because you just got back from church for like you know. No, <laughs> I had a clip on. I remember. I remember. She goes. I don't know if we're gonna go. You know, because she's seen him a hundred times. Well, she was just tired. Yeah, like but she'd but, already, but, but no, she that had, week. That week, she'd seen him like three times in a row. Yeah, she had seen him a bunch of times. I yeah, mean, so it was for and her. I remember I had a little clip on tie and I took it off and walked ahead of her because we lived close to the church. Yeah. You know. And I was just pissed. I was walking ahead of her, just slapping that damn tie on my legs, you know, <laughs> all the way home. And I went straight to my room and ripped all that stuff off, you know. And um, my mom, I give her so much credit about, my mom was a great hyper, like yeah. hyping up stuff, you know. Uh-huh. Like if we were going to a movie on Friday, she would start hyping it on Tuesday, yeah. Does that make sense? 
she goes, the new movie's coming out. We're going to get, I mean, and I would just get worked up into a frenzy. Well, right there, you were, that That just shows you naturally were built for the music business. You were oh, that's promoting I, beforehand. So she, oh, was, she, and was, she didn't even realize it, but she was, I mean, my mom would have been amazing um, record person. So she'd hype it up from Tuesday. Oh yeah. yeah. So she mentioned it and then she was just like the day of the show, she started like kind of backpedaling on me a little bit yeah. and, um, and I got pissed and I was just remember, I remember being in my room, taking off all that crap and changing and, or whatever. And then out of nowhere, she came busting into my room. She goes, are you ready? Cause we're about to go see the King of rock and roll. And I damn lost it. I was like ready to go. <laughs> like, Oh my God, like that. Yeah. This is going to be insane. And, um, and, and we drove down there as a just beautiful day. And, um, that was the first, I mean, that was literally, literally the first time that I'd ever heard volume like that in my life. Yeah. That's the first time that I had been around that many people literally, lose their shit. I mean, like lose it. And when he came out to that 2001 space odyssey and that band hit and they opened up with CC Ryder after that, dun, 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 gung, 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 just the high. I mean, it literally, I thought the Omni, I thought it was cracking in half. I mean, <laughs> it was so loud and so awesome. And when he hit and that damn, snare drum just like everyone in that building had a camera with one of those flash bulbs that <laughs> just would just light up light up a room by itself yeah and literally the whole first song you could see all the way across the omni like the lights are on because of the flashes the flash and yeah. he came out and he probably had 10 spotlights on him i mean and that all white just lit up and man it was after that day, for me personally, just after that day, everything everything changed. It was different. You know, things things that used to not matter started to matter. So he died. Did he die in August of seventy seven? Yeah, yeah. So was this? This wasn't the last time he played it. But my mom, like my mom, said that I'd come home, and yeah. she was just like, it was from that day on. It, things were just a little different. You did know? you Did you see him the last time he played Thomney? Was that the last show he did? The I don't before know. He died? I don't know if that was the last one or not. I can't remember. I mean, I'm not, I've never like, yeah, but what's even crazier, you know, going back to how everything just seemed like it was right down the street. Yeah. So my grandmother who I live with in high school, you know, for two or three years off and on, you know, but my senior year, I lived there the whole year and my grandmother comes from a huge family, you know, lots of sisters and brothers. And one of her sisters, my aunt Nettie lived in Memphis. Right. And the first middle-class home that Elvis bought before Graceland, my aunt Nettie lived in that neighborhood. It was just your normal, you know, seventies little ranch style house, huh? That little, little neighborhood with ranch houses. Yeah, 60s, you know, the 60s, you know, the little flat ones or whatever with the yeah. carport, you know, or the car, you know, whatever. And my grandmother went to visit my netty up there and they were hanging out, you know, and, you know, how people like to go for strolls after dinner or before dark or whatever. And they were out walking and it was, he wasn't like huge yet. He was popular. You know, he was a teen hit, a teen sensation. So this would have been back in the... 
fifties, the little or right. He hadn't bought Graceland yet. This was the house before Graceland. Okay. He was making movies. Okay. I don't know if he'd been to I don't know if he even been to the in the service yet. I don't know. You'd have to fact check that. Yeah. You know, but um long story short is my grandmother and my Aunt Nettie were walking and my mom was in high school. So I'm thinking it had to be fifties. Yeah, it would have been fifties. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, it would have been fifties. Because your mom's the same age as my mom. So yeah, it would have been fifties. And my fifties. Um, and my aunt Nettie was and they were walking and my grandmother, you know, they're just walking and then just real casually, you know, my aunt Nettie goes, That's where that uh inter- that young entertainer Presley boy lives. <laughs> like that, you yeah, know? Yeah. And we're talking southern. Like yeah. my grandmother, I mean, they work in you know Monroe, Georgia, you know that's where they're from. Yeah, that's they work fields. I mean, yeah, you know all that stuff. And we're talking country, real country. And um, and my grandmother goes, Elvis Presley, because I mean my grandmother knew who Elvis was because of my mom. Yeah, and um, and she goes, yeah, that's the, uh, Elvis Presley, like that. Now this I do know is because the pink Cadillac had been bought. Okay, for yeah. his mom. Yeah. Okay. And. My aunt Nettie says, "Yeah, that's where it's at." And then my grandmother was just got my grandma. If you knew my grandma, she just went, "Lord of my that, that slow, that slow, that slow, Lord have mercy," like that. <laughs> she goes, she goes, Lamarle worships the ground that man walks on, you know, <laughs> and uh, and she would go, Lamarle would just scam me if I didn't, you know introduce myself or whatever, you know? Yeah. And lo and behold, my grandmother and uh, aunt Nettie went up there and knocked on the door and, um, Gladys came to the door and Vernon was in the backyard watering flowers. And then all of a sudden Gladys is like, how you doing? And then my aunt Nettie introduced herself that lives around the corner. And this is my sister, Rosalie. And, uh, we was in the neighborhood strolling, and I, I told Rosie here, you know, that uh, this is the Presley family home. And, and she's like, well, yes, and yada, yada. And long story short, she come, they invited her in. They sat and talked in the living room, you know, for a while. And um, Elvis was out in California. He wasn't there. And, um, but they, you know, gave her a little small little tour of the home, just a normal home. And uh, my uh, grandmother said his guitar was laying across the bed. And uh, that was it. And then right before my grandmother and uh, Aunt Nettie left, she, uh, um, my grandmother says, is there any keepsake? you have a little keepsake or any kind of picture I can take home to my daughter, Merle, like that? And, uh, and it was like, matter of fact, they sent some over the other day. Hey, hang, on, hang on one moment. And uh, they gave my uh, grandmother, it was a picture of Elvis with uh, DJ Fontana and Scotty Moore behind them, yeah. like a little eight by 10, like glossy, you know? And it wasn't black and white. It was kind of like that, that brown old school look, you know? Yeah. And he's sitting there and, um, and they gave that to my grandmother to give uh, my mom. And uh, yeah, so... And my grandmother would just tell that story like it was no big deal. It used to crack me up, you know. And um, but like like I said, you know, I grew up with him in my life since I could remember, and just all that stuff, you know, hearing that through my life and everything, everything just seemed it was like right there, you know, you know. And 
you're talking about meet and greets. The first meet and greet I ever went on, I was only like 16 years old, 16 or 17 years old. And I was work. My mom didn't want me. No, I wasn't 16. I was younger than 16 because I hadn't bought my car yet. My mom didn't want me sitting around the house all summer and getting in trouble. So she got me a landscaping job at the apartments that she worked in. And she was running uh, Moonraker Apartments on Delk Road. And Moonraker Apartments was like, back then they had adult communities. Yeah. And it was an adult community. It you was mean like senior community or adult community? Adult community. Okay. Like Party Central. Oh, uh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I gotcha. mean, this this place, I think it was owned by the guy that owned Penthouse Magazine. They had Grotto. Bob Gutierrez. Uh, Dude, their pool was like, it was like the Playboy Mansion. They had like waterfall. It was like that. They had Grotto, indoor, outdoor. Wow. And my mom managed it. We didn't live there, but she managed it. And... I, she goes, I got you a job, you know, working with the landscaping crew at the, uh, at the apartments. And I go, great. I can make some money and buy my car, yada, yada. And long story short, I worked there all summer. And there was this guy that worked there that would come up and shoot pool and hang out at the pool, you know, have beers, whatever. And he looked just like Billy Gibbons. Yeah. But he's cool. He was like a heavy set Billy Gibbons kind of like an athletic build to him. And his name was Billy Skid. Gibbons from ZZ top. Right. With a beard. Yeah. And uh, his name was, his name was Skid. That's what everybody called him. Skid. And he used to come up there and I, one day I had this Waylon Jennings t-shirt on, you know, just hanging out. And I would talk to him cause I could just tell he was a cool guy. And um, he had a lot of charisma about him. Just, you know, he was a character, you know, and the more I got to know him, he had a smoking hot wife, too. His wife was like total fox. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And he drove a Jaguar. So I was like, man. And she drove a Cadillac. You know, it was like they had something going on. You yeah. know? And back then, that was the, the apartments were the place to be, you know. And um, super cool apartment complex. And um, so long story short, I'm sitting there with Waylon Jennings T-shirt on. And he goes... You like Waylon? And I go, yeah. I go, yeah, man. He's he's coming to town, I think, with Neil Young. And he was, Waylon Jennings was opening for Neil Young and uh, at the Omni. And uh, and he goes, and he knew my mom, and my mom knew all the residents, but he goes, you want to go see Waylon Jennings? And I go, yeah. Heck yeah, I want to see Waylon Jennings. And he goes, all right, go ask your mom if, if, if it's cool if I take you to see Waylon Jennings like that. And that, and she was there. I went up there and talked to her, and I said, Waylon Jennings is playing next week, so-and-so at the Omni. He's opening for Neil Young, and uh, Skid wants to know. And she goes, who? And then I pointed down like she could look down and see. Yeah. And I said, he wants to take me to see uh, um, Waylon Jennings. And, I, and I, I go, is that all right? And she goes, I guess, like that, you know. And so we go down there and so long, you know, fast forward, we go to the show and I go, where are we sitting? He goes, we ain't got no tickets like that, you know? And I go, we don't have no tickets. He goes, I go, how are we getting in? He goes, you don't worry about it. He goes, we'll be all right. He goes, we're gonna have a good time like that. And we're, I go, wow, we're going down there early. Like it was, you know, we we're going down there early, you know? Yeah. And we get out of the car and we walk to the back door and everybody knows him like on Waylon's crew. You know, everyone knows him, you know, and they're like, they're like, my, they're like, some of them were calling him Skid, some of them were calling him Mike, you know what I mean? They're like, what's up? And I was just walking with him. We didn't, ha we walked smack dab in the back of that door 
and walked right down. And then there's like, hey, mate, you know, whatever. And uh, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> we're boom, there we are, me, him, and Waylon Jennings and Jesse Coulter. And I'm like, wow, like we're, we're there we are hanging out. <coughs> we're sitting there hanging out, and I'm like just starstruck, you know? Yeah. And uh, just sitting there talking with them, and I got a little bored, you know, just because they were talking and catching up or whatever, and you know, they started in lengthy conversations, sat down and. I just said, I go, I'm going to go use the restroom or whatever. I'll be, you know, I wanted to, I'm backstage. I wanted to go look at stuff. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't you're, trying, like, you're trying to find the, you were 14. You're trying to find the, where the groupies were. Huh? 14, 15, <laughs> something around there. And yeah. I mean, I was a teenager, you yeah. know, and, uh, and I was just like, I wasn't looking for that. I was just like wanting to go check stuff Let's out. See what it's all about. I mean, I mean, I'm sitting there and I'm like, wow, there's Waylon Jennings. I've heard him. I go, what, you know, I wasn't like downplaying him. I just wanted to go check out a few more things you yeah know? sure and uh and so i'm walking and i was thirsty i want to use your, and, and then all of a sudden this door you know it's like halfway open but i see in there it's like a stainless steel tub and it is slap full of drinks like slap full of coca-colas you know beer cokes all that stuff just slap full of ice right there and i see that and i go backstage get whatever i want like that, you know, and the door's like halfway open, you know. I walked right in there, didn't see anybody. I just walked straight to that tub, picked it up, and I was like, wow, they even have a can opener right here. Boop. And then all of a sudden, I hear this guy go, hey there, young man. Like that, yeah. real nice, real cordial. And then I turned and I look over, and it was like a tour manager looking guy. And he was just like, how you doing? I go, I'm good. I go, how you doing? Like that, you know. <laughs> And uh, I says, yeah, we're here with Waylon, like that, you know? Like, yeah. I said, I'm here with uh, Skid, and this guy didn't know who Skid was. He was like, okay, like that. You with Waylon's people? And I go, yeah, yeah. And he goes, cool, like that, you know? He goes, well, this is Neil's room, like that. <laughs> and yeah. I go, and then I just stopped, and then I realized that, okay, I'm in Neil Young's room. Yeah. I go, I got it. I'm, I was like... And I was, I felt bad, yeah. you know, cause I just made myself at home and just went in there and all of a sudden I'm just sitting there and then I go, I am. And then I just apologize to the guy. I go, I am so sorry like that. And he goes, and, and I put the coat down and he goes, it's all right. All good. Like that. And then as soon as I put the coat down, I turn around <laughs> and on the couch sitting there with a acoustic guitar with his leg crossed <laughs> it's neil young he's sitting there like you know just playing tinkering on yeah. the guitar but the way the room was i didn't even i just walked right in and didn't i just all i saw was coca-colas yeah you know? and then i turned around and he looked up at me super nice he gave just kind of winked at me and he goes he goes he goes get your coca-cola he told me to get my coke yeah you know and I grabbed my Coca-Cola and I just looked at him and I was like, have a great show like that. And I, and I just walked out, but that's when I learned that was my first lesson in, um, back, backstage politics. Yeah, like, yeah. Just cause you're backstage. There's, you know, there's that side of the building and then the other side exactly, of the building. You yeah. just can't go free roaming. Well, that's great. Um, yeah. Well, cool. I think we're going to wrap this up. So, but, um, we're going to do it again soon. Cause you got, you probably have 20, 50, 100 stories we didn't even get to today. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. 30 years, that's a long time. But before we go, you want to plug what you're doing now? You want to plug it? 
Sure. Well, right now I'm not doing anything because of the pandemic. Obviously. You know, I mean, half the country is not, you know, but, um, yeah, currently I work for Mighty Loud Entertainment. You yeah. know, I'm currently on hiatus, you yeah. know. Um, a lot of our team, you know, is currently on hiatus. But um, Mighty Loud Entertainment, I work for uh, Jesse James Dupree. It's his company. And under Mighty Loud Entertainment, you know, we've got Jesse James Bourbon. We've got the Devils, which is his, uh, his line of bourbons. He has the uh, single barrel. Yeah. Uh, Tennessee whiskey, the original Jesse James bourbon. We got a spiced bourbon, and we also have a honey bourbon. And he's also got some, another one that's in the mix um, coming down over the next year or so. And then we also have a Devil's Devil cinnamon spirit, yeah. which is uh, like cinnamon, incredible. And then that's the uh, bourbon side, and that's mainly what I've been doing is working the uh, bourbon. And I do, you know, of course, there's Jackal that still tours and does. You know, tons of shows every year. Sure. But Very, and then there's the, um, he also has the uh, Cock of the Walk studio. studio. And then he also does a huge consulting, you know, with like major brands across the country that we partner with. Yeah. Uh, like VFW, people like that, Harley Davidson. And um, uh, and then he has the campground out in Sturgis, uh, the Pappy Hoyle campground, 600 plus acres right there at Bear Butte Mountain. And he hosts uh, the motorcycle rally out there, the original uh, Pappy Hoyle is the guy that started Sturgis 80 mm -hmm. years ago. This year is going to be the 80th anniversary and um, happens every year in August. Beautiful. It's right there at the base of uh, Bear Butte Mountain. Last year was the first time that I went, yep. you know, to the rally. Fell in love with Sturgis. I was out there a month, 31 days, just beautiful out there. And, um, you know, you know, there's the left and the right, you know, in the regards to politics, you know, and, yeah. you know, everyone and. uh, that saying, you know, the answer's in the middle. Yeah. I mean, that is smack dab in the middle of America and being out there and like no television, you know, and you're working so much, you're, you're putting on this huge event. So you're not listening to radio. You're waking up, putting on your jeans. It, I call it the rock and roll farm yeah. because it's dirty. It's, you know, grungy, Gritty. you know, dirt, you know, dust, you know, and, uh, Big open fields. No one sneaks up on you out there. You can literally watch the weather come to you. You know what I mean? That's so, incredible. like when it's raining, like it coming to you. So you'll see it. Huh? Yeah. And um, but yeah, that last year was my first year, and it was just beautiful out there. And being out there like for a whole month with no radio or, or no television, and just focusing on people coming to the ground, making sure that everybody's taken care of, was amazing. I mean, it, talk about like clearing your head and. I wasn't even in a hurry to come home, you know, yeah. after a while you get out there and you just get acclimated and it's just amazing, you know, how you can get acclimated and change pace, you know? Well, cool. Let's do it again soon, buddy. Yeah. All right, man. We'll talk to y'all later. Take care. All right.